Daniel chapter 11. And as for me in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall come shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. Then the kings of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and shall rule, and his authority shall be great, be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants and and her attendants he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times and from a branch from her roots one shall arise in his place he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and he shall deal with them and shall prevail he shall also carry off to egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the kings of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall rage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. He shall rise a great, raise a great multitude, and it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come with a great army and be abundant and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall, he shall set his face to come with strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be his advantage be to his advantage. Afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands, and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land. 
but he shall stumble and fall, and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor, the tribute of the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time, and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him, and his army shall be swept away. Many shall fall down slain, and as, and as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies the same, at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with a great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At, that, at the time appointed, he shall return and come to the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offerings. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it, is, for it still awaits the appointed time. Thanks, Sinead. May God bless the reading of his word and preaching of his truth this morning. As I was thinking of this chapter, can't help thinking about the world that we live in that is full of the same kind of war and conflict, here in the West, we maybe don't think about it so much, but don't think there's been a year since the fall that there hasn't been some kind of war and conflict on this wor world. Uh, since in the last 10 years, since 2010, there have been over 600,000 civilian casualties in war um, 
and rebellions and revolts, um, and that being only just in three countries, Afghanistan, Yemen, and Syria. In those same countries so far this year, there have been over 6,000 people that have been killed as a result of war. I think that that amounts to about 40 a day uh, as of now. May not seem like a lot in the grand scheme of things, but if we take an honest look at the world, we have to admit it's not a, a lot different than the conflicts that go on in this world today. And so we as the people of God, when we look at the world and the conflict and wars and and even the ones that go on in our personal lives that we know of that are... Uh, when we're faced with this conflict, we have a choice. Will we trust in God? Will we turn to mankind for hope? Daniel chapter 11 is, is one of the most complicated and precisely fulfilled prophecies in the Bible where king after king rose and fell just as God had said that it would happen. Over and over again, their pride leads to their destruction. Conflict is real. And so, ultimately though, who is the one who holds the future? Who is the one who declares all these things before they take place? Hundreds of years before they take place. is the Lord who holds the future. And this is a reminder for us as God's people in the midst of the conflict of this world to trust Him. Even when the future does not look the way that we want it to. Daniel 2, 20 and 22 is a Daniel thanking God for the wisdom that He gave him. They were going to be killed. Um, because the king was angry with the wise men, but the Lord answered his prayer, and Daniel said this about God, Blessed be the name of the Lord forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is, where is the darkness, and the light dwells with him. This is the God that we look to in the midst of what is going on in the world. The God who alone sets up and takes down kings. The, the one who alone knows the future and has wisdom for these time, trying times. He is the one in whom we must put our trust. In God's plan, the, the fiery forge of conflict that presses against us, reveals the true heart of those who call themselves people of God. As some are shaped and fashioned into the likeness of Christ, while others are melted down in the hot oven of God's wrath. We have a choice to make as the people of God when we look at the conflict in the world around us. 
So I want to give a brief overview of the chapter because there's a lot here. The main thing that I hope that you can come away with is to be amazed and to see how God knew and holds the future in his hands. In verse 2, as Shanae read, there are um, it was said that there would be three kings in Persia following the present king, and then a fourth. And that this fourth king would attempt to conquer Greece, but he would fail. And so it came to pass that there were three kings. And the fourth king, King Xerxes, made a massive attempt to conquer Greece. You might have heard about him in your history class. Um, he made a great bridge across the sea, and he conquered many cities, but ultimately he failed. And so several other kings then followed the Persian kings uh, of Xerxes, but the vision shifts in verses 3 and 4 to uh, a mighty king who rose and ruled with great authority was cut down, and we know this king to be Alexander the Great. He was the Greek prince who conquered the, the kingdom of Persia, but he died uh, on his before his 33rd birthday, and uh, at his death, the new Greek empire was plunged into war. As his generals fought over the kingdom, they split it into many pieces. And really, that's what the remainder of this chapter is about. It's that fighting that went on between the northern rulers, the Seleucid kingdom, and the southern rulers, the Ptolemies. And what follows is so accurate to history that critics of the Bible have said it has to have been written after the fact. There is no way that this was written 200 years beforehand or I forget if it's 200 or 300, but that's how completely and accurately the Lord reveals his plan for the future in this part of the world and the conflict that went on. He knows and he all things. He is over all. And so there's many wars and alliances and intrigue, and I have a couple of slides if you want to read them, uh, of the comparisons to history and what went on. Ultimately, it's the same pride and jealousy and fighting that we see today. And yet, all of these kings and all the people's strivings and fights and victories come to nothing as each one ends in the same way, they all die. They come to nothing. It's God who holds the future. We could talk a lot more about the details of these things, and that's wonderful if you're interested to see how God uh, has been, uh, has kept his word and has been faithful. But I think we'll leave it at that. Uh, as far as the great conflict that went on, it is nothing new. 
But how did God's people respond when they were stuck in the middle? Because that's something I didn't mention. The north, which in that time would be essentially Syria and towards the east, and the south would have been Egypt towards the east. And what is right in the middle when they come to war <laughs> against each other? They cross through the land of Israel. And, it, and God's people were being crushed in the middle as one army took over and then the other army. And how did they respond to this great conflict, which already in Daniel 9, God had promised times of trouble. Well, in verse 14, we have a very interesting uh, thing that, that it, it says that some of your people, some of the violent among your own people would lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but that they would fail. So there were some that tried in their own strength to uh, rebel, and they, they wanted to get out of the oppression, which is uh, fair enough. I understand that desire. But it wasn't the Lord's timing, and apparently the Lord was not with them, for they, they failed. Others turned to the world. And a reference there, verse 14. Others in verse 32 and 34 were seduced by flattery. They, they appealed the world's ways and the kingdoms appealed to them. And they went along with the way of the world and they chose to forget about God's covenant. But those who knew the Lord stood firm even as they stumbled and they endured oppression, God was purifying them. He was setting apart a people for himself from among all of Israel. So it kind of lays out those options that we have. A lot of times we fight conflict and we fight it with fire. <laughs> fight fire with fire. Or we perhaps we become like the world. And then there's no need for this conflict. But ultimately then, we are opposed to the Lord. Or we can turn to Him and trust the God who holds the future. I want to turn now to the final verses in our chapter, verses 36 to 45. I saved it because I want to read it all together now. It is a... Uh, another difficult passage to understand. So we'll read verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, or the one beloved by women, he shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. The god his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor." He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north 
shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall make become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his royal tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. This is a difficult passage basically because it previous to this it, it was talking about who we now know to be Antiochus the fourth the uh, king of the north who came against the people of Israel. And the question is, is this still talking about Antiochus or is this talking about someone else? And I, I really appreciate the comment of one uh, fellow, a commentator, who basically said, and I'm sorry that half the quote seems to be cut off, but he said that if we don't acknowledge a difficulty here, Anyone who does not acknowledge a difficulty here is a polemicist in the worst possible sense. And what he means by that is that um, he or she knows better that this is a difficult passage one way or the other, but does not acknowledge the difficulty and do not allow for tolerance of the other view is simply bad faith. And he puts the issue this way. Who is in mind in verses 36 and 45 to 45. And so what he's saying here is that it's difficult to know and to kind of not acknowledge the difficulty is really it is to uh, not accurately present things. There's different opinions on this. There's no, um, it just switches all of a sudden to this king, and is this a different king, or is this the same king? Um, some have concluded that it, it's just a pop, apocalyptic or grandiose language that describes Antiochus, but others have pointed out that um, there are several indications that, that this isn't Antiochus. Uh, some have pointed out that these verses don't fit with the life and death of of. King Antiochus. He, he didn't conquer Egypt. Uh, he attacked Egypt and he certainly um, did uh, win victories there, but in verse 42 it says that Egypt shall not escape and that he would take away the plunder of the Egyptians and the Libyans and the, Kudite, uh, the Kushites. And, they, and historians say, well, when did that happen? He also didn't die when he pitched his royal tents between the seas at the glorious holy mountain, which um, that is Jerusalem. He died of, of a disease in his own land. And so commentators then say, well, how did that happen, right? It's not uh, clear. 
think it's important for us to realize that the full meaning of a prophecy is, is almost never clear until after the fact. So I would suggest when Christ returns, we'll know what, what God meant by this for sure. But until then, we kind of have to acknowledge there are some difficulties. I do believe that these verses really do reflect Antiochus in many ways. You know, he did exalt himself above God. He did go and he did attack Egypt and he did come against the land of Israel and all those things. But it seems equally clear that if we're to take it in its most literal sense, it's very hard to fit with what Antiochus did in every way. And so, to the best of my understanding, this has moved beyond Antiochus to something greater, to someone greater, and yet future. And I think it's important to think, when you think about biblical prophecy, there are many times in Scripture where God presents a whole series of events as in one passage, as one event. It's like a, I take a collapsible telescope, and if I collapse it into one, you can't tell at first, perhaps, that it's, all, it's many pieces. But if I stretch it out, now you know that it's made up of many different parts. Or suppose I'm driving down from Fort McLeod, and I'm coming to Cardston. To be honest, I don't know about you, but I look and I see it seems pretty flat. That's just the reality of the prairies. It seems pretty flat, but then you come to Cardston and there's actually these little hills and you go further south and west and there's bigger hills. And so what seemed to be completely flat is not on closer examination. And, and often that is the way that it is in uh, prophecy where events seem one and the same, but on closer look, there's more to the story. This is the case with much of the prophecies of Jesus coming. Who knew at the time of the prophets there would be thousands of years between Jesus' substitutionary death and his triumphant return? In fact, many of them didn't even know or acknowledge the, understand the prophecies of Isaiah about the suffering servant who would die for the sins of his people couldn't tell at that time that the prophet spoke because the mystery was veiled so that people from all nations might become a part of the people of God. The same thing occurs in Joel chapter 2. It talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, but also the day of judgment when the Lord would come. Or when Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and he also speaks of his return. And so it can be difficult to know what is, which is what. Do we, have, do we divide it all up into pieces? Are they referring to both at once? I think in a very similar way here in Daniel 11, 36 to 45, that we see references to Antiochus Epiphanes, this king, a Greek king, the time just before Christ, taking on larger-than-life characteristics, which we, living in light of the New Testament, could say, at the very least, it's anticipating a figure 
that we would call the Antichrist, a term that only is used in the book of 1 John, but is also referenced in places like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Old Testament prophecy. Other words that people have used is that Antiochus is a type or a foreshadowing, or even, an, maybe some would just say, it is referring to Antiochus, but it's an example of the one to come. So I'm saying this to say that there are some difficulties. Um, but at the core of it, when I think about this big debate, I want you to be aware of it. And I do think we can look uh, to one that there might, maybe it seems that there's one to come uh, who will defy God and embody all of the characteristics of this prophecy. But whether you agree with that or not, I, I could care less if you are... Uh, responding to the conflicts and struggles around us today in a godly way. You see, prophecy, it may be speaking of the future, but if it does not affect me today, and if I am not living in the, the struggles that I am facing and the conflicts that I have a part in, then what's the point? Romans 15 verse 4 tells us how to view the scriptures, the Old Testament, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So it's not just about the future, but how does that future, how does the present and the past affect us today, how I'm living? How am I being instructed and encouraged? by these great conflicts that took place or are yet to take place. So I want to make a few observations. One of the big instructions, I think, the things that we learn from this is that we face the same pride of mankind that leads to the same conflict. You just watch the news and read about China and Russia and America and the Middle Eastern conflicts or look at your own life and the fights that you have with your siblings or your parents or your spouse and we can see that it's not a lot different. People have been raising themselves up above the place of God or striving to since the time of Babel. Three times in Daniel 11, verses 3, 16, and 36, it is said of the kings that they did as they willed. They were doing, they were following their own desires. This is what characterized them. And I believe that it characterizes them all as a whole, that they, though God held the future, were living for themselves. And this is what caused the conflicts that went on. As in the day of Judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and as we live today, 
James warns us about this in James chapter 4, 1 and 2. It says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. The core of the problem hasn't changed. Humanity is just as covetous as the day that Adam and Eve coveted the position of God. Listen to the lie of the serpent. And because of this conflict that we see in the world and this war that goes on, as we saw in chapter 10, behind the scenes as well, there is the same opposition to God and his people. Jesus said if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, then how much more will they malign his servants? As, as people who live among a world that is full of competing desires, for us to stand apart it is not appreciated. There will be opposition. It's not a pleasant picture or reality, but we live in this world and we will come up against conflict. And if we continue to ignore this truth and do not allow the, the word of God to instruct us in this matter, we may paint a rosy picture of life for ourselves, but we're not doing ourselves a favor by ignoring reality. What do we do with this? How do we respond? Two things that go on in a global scale with conflict and things that happen in our personal lives. It comes down to this. There's not only the same conflict, but we have the same choices as the people of Israel had. And so like them, we could add fuel to the fire of conflict by going our own way, following our own desires, like the ones, the violent men in verse 14, who thought they were doing good, but were only creating more conflict. When we trust in our own strength and we, we try to change situations or push through them uh, without the Lord, without seeking His will, His desire in it, then it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to turn out well. No matter how good and just our cause is, we cannot rely on our own strength or wisdom to change anything. So we need to be careful of fighting fire with fire. And being really, in that sense, in the way that we treat the things that go on, we're not being any different than the world. We can also... Fuel the fire of conflict by giving in and becoming no different. The world offers acceptance and love and peace, and who doesn't want that? But the price is giving up your allegiance to the Lord, rejecting His standards in favor of our own. And sadly, this is what a lot of so-called Christians have done. This is what the people of Israel, who were flattered by the, the offers of this king, of the north, and they gave up what God had told them. 
Many believe in Christ with no cross, heaven but no hell, and a Savior but no sin. And what is that? It is not the gospel. It is not the truth. It is trying to become a friend of the world, but then we become an enemy of God. Those who were flattered by Antiochus didn't stand. They escaped the opposition of the world. They might have had a a nicer, pleasanter position in life in the kingdom of Israel at the time. But they found God opposed to them. Which is worse? It's, It's tragic that so many people are aligning themselves against the Lord Almighty in the name of Jesus Christ. And we call ourselves the people of God, but we don't look or act any different. The answer is not to fight. It is not to be like the world. It's also not to fear the conflict or to try and avoid it out of worry. Nobody wants conflict, but when it comes, are we trying to run from it? Or are we constantly living in fear of it? It can be easy to look at the world and be discouraged by the wickedness and conflict around us. I I, I get that. We look at our country a hundred years ago, it wasn't this far from the truth, to, to my feeble understanding. There was people were still sinners. They were still rejecting the Lord. But it hasn't uh, gotten better that way. Yet the world isn't in our hands. It's in the hands of a good and perfect God, the same God who declared all of these wars and conflicts and persecutions of his people before they took place. Because he had a plan. And ultimately for his people, that was that they would be purified. They would be refined. They would be made white. Holy. I think about conflict on a small scale. When it hits really close to home, whether it's, it's church or family or workplace conflict, we all have competing desires, and, and we then, <laughs> there, that creates opportunity, at least, for conflict. But do we fear that? Do we avoid it like a plague and run at the slightest thought of getting hurt? Getting hurt is not fun, it is not pleasant, it is not good. But instead of giving in to fear, there is a better way. That we would see how God holds the future even in those situations. How he calls us to give up our desires. To love and to serve and to forgive. To have the mind of Christ. Which he has given us by his spirit. And to do that in spite of what might happen. We need to remember that he he has given us strength for each day. Past and present. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Conflict is a reality. We may not have the specific plan for your life that you can say, like, like in Daniel 11, that this is, this is going to happen and this and this. We can trust that God really does hold the future, and that is 
ultimately the right response when it comes to the conflict we see in this world. We can trust God, and when we, when we look at what he says and powerfully shows us in Daniel 11, how he kept his word and holds the future down to the smallest details, we can trust that he really does know what he's doing in our daily lives and in the, this crazy world that we live in. It's the people who know their God, the one true God who will stand firm and take action. More than anything, we need to know and to understand and to believe and remind ourselves of the the reality that God is in control, that he holds the future in his hands. And even the sword and the flame in captivity have a purpose. Forced in the fiery furnace of conflict, God's people are sanctified unto himself. That they might draw near to their God. It's amazing to look back upon this chapter and to read about God's people in the middle of political intrigue and alliances and wars, wickedness. But the chapter ends, as it has before, in pretty well all prophecies. They end with this this theme that Syria, Egypt, and China, and America, and Canada, none of these kingdoms will last. The kingdom of God is coming. Pride of man will come to an end with none to help him, but as God's people, we know the God who holds the future in his hands. Proverbs 16, 2-4 reminds us, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord is the one that weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. 